Kimichi. Good morning. You are listening to Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corinne Pierce on KZYX. The song that you just heard was Salmon Song by Tommy Gravins, who is a Native American flautist from the Nez Pierce tribe. And this morning, we are going to be talking a lot about fish, so I thought that it was very fitting to play that for you this morning. Sinwama, welcome. Sintamana. I'm your host, Keishi Corrine Pierce. I'm a local Pomo basket weaver, traditional artist, herbalist, dancer, storyteller, and cultural educator with ancestry from Lake and Mendocino counties. Happy New Year. Yawi, thank you for joining me today for the first Monday of 2023 to take a closer look at some of the amazing people, places, events, and species that make our home in Mendocino, Lake, and Sonoma counties unique and rich. I'm grateful to be able to share some of my personal heroes and friends who happen to be some of the most influential movers and shakers in our local indigenous communities and beyond. Today's show, we will be talking about the habitat associated with the Clear Lake Hitch and other native fishes. I've been looking forward to today's show for two months. We are being joined today by Luis Santana, who is currently working with Robinson Rancheria. He's a fisheries biologist with a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Science from CSU Sacramento. He has 10 years of fisheries experience and has worked with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service, Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission, and the Yurok Tribe. That is quite an impressive resume. A couple of months ago, I had the pleasure of spending a very cold morning walking along a stream bed in Cobb with some very dedicated environmental stewards, and he was among them. I was so impressed by him, I learned so much, not only um, about the Clear Lake Hitch and their current struggles, but about waterway health and conservation in the short time that we spent together. He's such a powerhouse of knowledge, I knew I had to invite him on the show. Welcome, Louis. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I have, I have to let you know that even though I have been doing good ancestors and local treasures for over a year, due to COVID restrictions, you are actually my very first in-studio guest. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited um, to just let you start talking. <laughs> I want to give you a lot of time so that you can um, let everybody know who you are and what you're doing and give them um, some information about um, the lake, the waterways, and where we live so that they can understand what's going on. <clears throat> okay. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Lake County. I was born in Napa, um, and then I went to elementary school in Kelseyville, and then in middle school, I switched over to Upper Lake. And after high school, I knew I was going to go to college, so <clears throat> I went to college at... <laughs> Sac State, CSU Sacramento, got an environmental science degree and a minor in geology. So uh, I wanted to do something in, related to watersheds. And so then I started working. Um, my first fisheries-related job was with the uh, geology department at Sac State, and it was basically um, just doing water quality on recent gravel augmentation projects for um, salmon in the central valley specifically on the american river and on the feather river 
So gravel augmentation projects is just um, putting gravels in that salmon need for spawning. And so we just studied the different water quality um, associated with those gravels and then we compared them to what that what habitat remains so gravels that remain but they were already in bad condition um, so our water quality samples showed that and proved that but then like being out there doing all the sampling itself we saw that the salmon liked all the new gravels that were introduced just because the systems have drastically changed um, so that was with uh, the geology department at Sac State. At the same time, I was working with um, CDFW, California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, and just, I moved along in my career. I went with the Forest Service for three seasons, and then I'd come back and work for CDFW. Um, for a whole year, I was with uh, Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission on the Feather River with the sturgeon, the sturgeon crew, but I got to work with salmon at the same time. And then after that, I went to the Yurok tribe and got some awesome experience up there. I was with them for three years. I was able to work on the Sacramento River, the Klamath, the, Tr the Trinity, and all its tributaries. So I was just like, I've, I've been open to a lot of different fisheries throughout the state. And one of, one of my Forest Service jobs was actually down in um, Santa Barbara. And so I worked with Southern Steelhead Habitat. But when I was there, it was in the middle of that, the last drought we had not this current one um so i didn't really get to see any any steelhead i just got to see some tiny pools that had no fishes in it um but yeah since then i've i've moved back home um closer to family um i'm now with my family which is it's awesome i, I honestly i never thought i'd be working at home just because the fisheries world has never been here like growing up i never remembered any kind of fisheries work going on I know it's important to be able to come back home, no matter what your job is, to be able to be at home and, and live your passion, and I always call it right livelihood, but to be able to do it at home is, is important. I did not know that you had been all over the state doing all this. So where has been your favorite place? To work besides home? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> basically all my jobs are amazing um you know i worked in south lake tahoe my my workstation was out of myers so i was in tahoe for a couple summers but i think the best time was definitely with the Yurok tribe just because of all the people that i met up there and then all the different habitats that i got to see all the experiences that i got um so yeah besides being home up up working with the Yurok tribe because we worked in so many different places Awesome. So I'm going to ask you about salmon after. <laughs> um, I, I play the special treat that I have for everybody, but I really want to um, hear from you about the Clear Lake Hitch. Mm -hmm. um, they are, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and um, everything is always sensationalized, you know, and uh, I was reading that they are the most endangered fish in california right now um and a lot of people don't know that and they're very special because they're only here so i'm hoping that you can tell people about what they are um where they live uh, their life cycle and and why they're being so impacted yeah um so they are a very large minnow and so uh the females get pretty big uh during the spawn um they get a, right around a foot in length uh the males are a little bit smaller uh, but yeah, they're 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 a minnow that they have a 
Tetragramus life cycle. Um, so you could compare that to anadromy, which salmon are. So salmon, <clears throat> they're born in rivers and tributaries, and they make their way down to the ocean, and then they live their adult lives in the ocean. Um, and then they come back and they spawn. And so these minnows are the same thing, the clear hitch. They they just use Clear Lake as their ocean, but they go into the tributaries and spawn. Um, so a, lo a lot of the habitat stuff is it's not it's not very simple to explain. Um, so to start off with habitat stuff, let's address the one thing that is affecting everyone, which is this drought. And we've had some awesome rains in the last month, month and a half, but it's it hasn't really done much. Um, so this drought is affecting everyone. Um, so if we were in a drought, it'd be a little bit different. And we definitely see that in different sampling um, techniques. Like we know when there's more water, there's more fishes in general. So if there's more water, there'd be more hitch for many different reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is they have the habitat to be able to live. Okay, so we're in this drought. The other thing, that all the habitat is basically changed um, from what it used to be. And so one of the main reasons, and it's not, it's not blaming, um, people today, but you know, farming when it's first started becoming industrialized, basically everywhere they had a system. And so they didn't want their fields to flood. So they basically levied creeks and rivers up or rerouted them to go around fields and it completely changed the entire system so in valleys where a stream wasn't basically confined to one area it'd be able to move back and forth like a snake wherever it wanted but now those streams just move straight into the lake and so it's great for flood protection um it's not very good for habitat um so in these systems you also go in and you you know take out vegetation you take out any kind of large woody debris that's in there that's habitat for fishes um and so that habitat structure is also gone so the habitat available now isn't optimal um not just for these hitch but other native fishes as well so the entire system has changed and that's not just in clear lake that's throughout the watershed and so clear lake is in the sacramento watershed and as you move down there's irrigation there's dams there's dikes so all the habitat is being affected so then um you know you incorporate the drought into that and now in these streams where they would have water for and this is after spawn they have water for at least six months out of the year and some of these streams they don't make it past the incubation stage or they don't even get to incubate mm -hmm. just because the water is pumped up and um, irrigated at such a high rate and so it, it's it's difficult to just say okay this is the problem when you know that the whole the problem is like spread throughout and we're not just being affected in the clear lake basin but like downstream is also being affected um, the Delta had a huge fish kill this last summer. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of friends that still work at CDFW and they sent me pictures of giant sturgeon just dying because their habitat was, you know, they couldn't live in it anymore. The, the water quality was bad. Um, so it's happening everywhere.
and you know fish fish kills are a naturally occurring event but not to the extent that we have them today um so it's all very man-made um but now we know how to fix that problem um so it's it's something that we need to focus on like restoring habitat to you know what it used to be and it, it's not necessarily fixing all the habitat because that's probably going to be impossible just because there's a lot of private land but as long as we could you know have tiny niches where um these fishes could thrive then maybe we give them a better shot at surviving and producing the next generation that's really interesting um so i wanted to um talk about when we were on cob you talked about um the vineyards using the water for frost protection Mm -hmm. even sometimes when there's no real threat of frost and um i want everybody listening to to know like how hands-on um the tribes are around the lake and they were telling the story and i'm going to let him tell it about when they're monitoring and they found this um you know small creek with a whole bunch of fish in it one day and then the next day the water was gone and then they had to move them so i want to hear about about that that event that happened yeah so um big valley they have an awesome environmental department and they do a lot of the water monitoring and during the the spawns they they go around the big valley streams and like just check to make sure that there's no stranding events of hitch um so they reported a stranding event in late april uh mid mid to late april and so cdfw came out um ben ewing is a district biologist he does an awesome job um so he came out and there's a bunch of stranded pools and so we did a bunch of rescues um for the next week or so and so I forget the date. I think it was like May 3rd, something, May 3rd or the week before. And so I hiked the entire Adobe Creek system from the Adobe Reservoir down to Soda Bay, which is where our rescue started. And so um, in one of our rescue events, there was a pool that was about five feet deep. And so we have, when we do our rescue events, we use a backpack electro fishers. So you just shock the water and you kind of just, you know, when you shock these fish, there's, there's a certain, um, voltage that basically knocks them out for 15 seconds or so. And so you scoop up the fish, you put it in a bucket, you put it in, um, an ice chest and they have, um, aeration in it. So they have awesome oxygen levels and so you get them a little bit less stress and then you release them back into the lake where hopefully they survive so in one of these pools um with these backpacks on there's certain depths that you can't go and so i went to this pool and i was wearing waders at the time and so my waders come up to my chest and you know, I'm, I'm big i'm six two so right around five foot i was just like okay well i'm not doing this anymore we know we can't backpack electro fishing here and so there's probably it, it's really hard to estimate how many hitch were in there or another fishes um because I, I, I think i saw a bass um it definitely wasn't a hitch so i was like okay well this one's too deep and you know ben agreed with me and so we're like we'll be fine um especially because it was starting to rain and so there was rain in the forecast so we're like we'll be good for at least a week i'll come back um next week and so i went back a few days later 
because this was like on a Thursday. So I went back on Monday. <clears throat> and by the time I got back, that pool that was five feet was completely gone. It was completely dry. And so over the weekend, I took my daughter to the park, um, the county park in Gelsonville. And I saw that the frost protection was occurring. And it was probably like 45 degrees. So it wasn't even freezing. Um, so I'm not entirely sure why they were doing that. But it wasn't just like one farm. It was all of them. Wow. And this is like, this is in Big Valley. And um, Big Valley's environmental department definitely has more information on it. Because um, they're right there. I mean, they they see when it happens because they have a vineyard across the street and they have orchards left and right. Um, so they know when frost protection is occurring. They have a awesome system in place over there. Um, yeah, so that, that happened in Big Valley. So uh, where I work on the Robinson side, it's Middle Creek. Um, the water was good there running in Middle Creek through July. But in Big Valley, it was completely dry by early May. Wow. So when is there... Um, I was reading that they're spawning season is coming up that it's a like yep. a late winter early spring mm -hmm. could you tell us about their life cycle is how long do they live how long does it take them to mature yeah so they they live right around seven years um they mature in the first couple years um so it it, it all depends on a lot of different things but right around um year two that's when we see most of them coming back i mean you do get year one um, juveniles coming back and trying to spawn and so their life cycle when, when they are when the adults are spawning uh, the females lay their eggs and they're what's called broadcast spawning and what a broadcast spawn is is um, they release the eggs in the water table and then the males are swimming right along and they fertilize those eggs and so once those eggs are fertilized they kind of just get moved downstream with the water and um, they incubate for i mean two to six weeks it all depends um but then once they come out they make their way down into the lake and you kind of want that to go as slow as possible but in today's conditions you they don't do that so the reason we want them to go you know slower is because they're slowly getting bigger um so they're eating whatever they need to eat they get bigger and then they make it to the lake and hopefully once they're to the lake they're big enough to avoid predation um more often than not but there's not many studies on that so it's it's really difficult to actually say like what what is the case and what is not mm -hmm. so once they make it to the lake we want them to get nice and fat they hang out near near shore um and once they get right about to a year old, they make it out into open water, into the lake. And then at some point, a switch goes off when they're like, hey, it's time to spawn. And they make their way back up the creeks. And then the life cycle just keeps playing over and over. That's so cool. I think um, I want to remind everybody uh, how old Clear Lake is. Clear Lake is the oldest uh, freshwater lake in california definitely and in north america so it's the largest natural freshwater lake in california there are larger man-made lakes now um but 
they've proven that people have been around that lake for at least 11,000 years, 16,000 years. Um, but if people were going to be living somewhere, anywhere, there would be somewhere with fresh water. So we've been around the lake for a long time, and um, this fish is a really important part, was a very important part of our staple diet. I actually talked to my mom last night, and I was like, okay, mom, now you tell me your hitch stories. And she just looked at me like I was crazy. And then and then she started telling me about when they took them over there as kids. And she did a little humble brag and said that she could pick up more than one, like pick up, you know, four, you know, two in each hand when she was a little kid. And um, that the parents were standing on the side and the kids would just throw in the fish to them because they were so plentiful. Um, and I think you were telling the story about when you were young that you were able to have that experience was that you that was saying that yeah can you tell us about that and where it was happening because it shocks me that you were right in town and yeah. doing that yeah so um everyone knows century market on the north side of the lake and there's a little there's a little ditch behind century market so between century and the lake there's a little ditch back there and this one day i was walking with my grandma to century um, we were probably getting milk, I don't know, rinse cereal or something. And I was like, oh, look, Grandma, all those fish. And she looks, and she's like, wow, there's a lot of them. I'm like, yep. And so we go back to her house, and then we bring a grocery bag. And then my grandma could only use one arm because she's paralyzed from the left arm. And so she was the one doing the fish. I was like five or six, and I was like trying to catch the smallest one out there um, just because I thought it was fun. But I remember my grandma catching... I don't know, 10 hitch maybe. And then they barbecued them later on. Um, I remember back then I didn't really like eating fish, but I do remember tasting it and I was just like, I don't want to eat this. <laughs> but uh, now it's different. I mean, I eat a lot more fish now than I did in the past. But yeah, um, they were just in this ditch and thousands of them. It was crazy. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I've never had it barbecued. <laughs> I've only ever had them dried and smoked. Um, which, you know, is like fish jerky. So I like jerky. Yeah. <laughs> I would never complain about that. Uh, I'm, I want to read a quote really quick. Um, I think it was from the LA Times, and they are talking about um, the emergency uh, protection that was requested and denied for um, the Clear Lake Hitch. But I wanted to read this because it, it really was crazy. Um, Clear Lake is not only the oldest and largest, it may be the most polluted and wildfire-prone watershed in California. In 2020, the Lake County region was charred by six of the 20 largest wildfires in state history. That was just in 2020. Clear Lake is up to eight miles wide and 25 miles long and is the largest natural lake in California. Um, I'm going to read this quote really quick. Actually, I will not read this quote really quick <laughs> because I want to stay on my time schedule. So we're going to take a quick break from doing our interview um, because I have something special that I want to share with uh, everybody. So I want to share a poem, and it's called The Song of the Salmon. 
It was written and performed by Lahui White Bear, who is an enrolled member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. She is a PhD candidate in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at Oregon State. She is the assistant professor for the School of Language, Culture, and Society, as well as the center director for the Native American Longhouse, Ina Hawes, at Oregon State University. This poem is associated with a mini-documentary by the same name, and it was made possible with funding from the Marine Fisheries Genomics and Behavior Lab at Hatfield Marine Science Center in Oregon State University. Uh, they began a project a couple years back focusing on a more natural, or as they refer to it, wild-like mate selection in salmon at hatcheries. And I will quote the documentary. The immortal ritual of mate choice has enhanced vitality of salmon over millennia. Researchers at Oregon State University are experimenting to determine if emulating wild-like mate choice in hatcheries could enhance vitality of salmon. The, fir the first cohort of the wild-like hatchery spawn coho will mature this year in 2023, and hopes are high that they will thrive. So this poem is about mate selection, but it is also about so much more. The description of the poem itself says, and I quote, Being picky in love is not just a mammalian trait. Wild fish are also selective when choosing a partner. The Song of the Salmon is a poetic exploration of salmon and the vitality of mate and other choices set against the backdrop of the beautiful Oregon coast and its complex river system and history. Oh, I hope that you enjoy this poem. waves and homecoming memories, guiding them back to the place of beginning and the place of what is to come, the search for a partner to bring forth new life, the choice in what's needed to ensure a future for the Salmon Nation, traveling through depths of rolling waves, through ocean deep and shoreline bays, to where salt mixes with sweet songs of mountain streams flowing to a meeting of life energy, changing chemistry of delicate beings, all the while traveling not alone, but with others, learning their patterns, learning their strengths, learning their compatibility, much like a lover's dance in the midst of a crowd of strangers in new but familiar spaces drawn together by what each other needs, resilient with memories of ancestors, reaching back to the time when salmon were people. Stories passed down following first frost, stories passed between relatives of land and of water, 
traveling around bends across currents, floating with each swish of tail, stirring something within, searching and traveling to a gathering of a nation, long forgotten beyond the depths of the rivers and streams and seas. That ancestral memory carried on despite the floating oil and beads of plastic, the modification of bodies and of stream beds, despite the shrinking water and rising temperatures. That ancestral memory, instructions carried forward for the coming generations to seek the ones who hold the strength of the future in their beings. That mix of life energy, always a choice, a delicate dance between life and death. An end to a new beginning with the memories passed down, not by coincidence or by chance, but through searching for that one who can dance to the song of the salmon as instructed by the ancestors, whose voices continue to travel the currents, reminding all life of what beauty and balance and survival looks like. One last look to the one chosen to carry forward the salmon nation from one generation to the next, into the future, so their people may live. Good morning. Thank you for joining me on Good Ancestors and Local Treasures on KZYX. Um, I am here today with Luis Santana talking about a native fish. And uh, we just heard the song of the salmon written poem, which I absolutely love. And I, I hope that you enjoyed it. I actually was holding back tears. I listened to it a few times yesterday and it did make me cry. Um, so this is a good time to talk to... Uh, Luis about uh, what the tribes are doing around the lake, what the different tribes are doing, and also um, if you have anything that you want to add about salmon, that would be a wonderful time. Yeah, um, so the Hatfield Marine Center actually had a class there in grad school. I did a, my graduate certificate in fisheries management through Oregon State, and that yeah, that center is amazing. It's it's like something else when i went there i was just like whoa dude i wish that there was more of these facilities yeah i'm really excited about that um wild like mate selection because before the show started you were talking a little bit about how it is now yeah. and i'm wondering if you can explain that to everybody what it's like um what what the spawning is like now for the fish and the fisheries yeah so typically in um whatever hatcheries are collecting any kind of eggs for brood stocks for the next year you take the female you get all the eggs and then you take the male and you get the what's called the milt which is the sperm and you fertilize the eggs and then you incub incubate them for however long and then at some point you raise them in raceways um 
and then after about a year you release them um so when you do that they don't take any kind of genetics into account so that that's why coming from the genomics lab it makes a lot of sense because um you don't know if the two salmon that you're spawning are brother and sister um so when they're you know doing a more wild approach that's basically trying to um let them do their thing naturally um so i'm not i'm not entirely sure how they're doing their research but maybe they're letting them pick the mate and then at the perfect time they just take them up and then that's how i'm, I'm not entirely sure what they're doing i'd have to read more about it but yeah it's just not it's not that natural the way we do things today and i think it's just because of time constraints and differing funding types um so yeah, it's just not natural. So I'm um, trying to get them a more natural state because in, in, so what a lot of people don't know is in hatcheries, the fecundity of salmon goes down and what fecundity is, is um, the ability to produce the next generation. Um, so in essence, like if the fecundity in a female goes down, it could be the difference between being able to produce 300 eggs to like 150 eggs. And so those numbers aren't completely precise or accurate, but just using them as an example. Um, so already out of those 300 eggs in a natural setting maybe two of those eggs will survive to adulthood and come back so if you lower the fecundity of the salmon you lower the rate of adult fish coming back wow so you want as many wild producing salmon as you could possibly have because in our rivers like the way they used to be hundreds of millions of salmon and now it's not the case anymore um so i'm glad i'm glad they're doing that type of research it's it's definitely been yeah it surprised me when i was talking to you about it and you're like they've been pushing for that mm -hmm. for a long time are they i don't know very much about fisheries which is why you're here yeah. um what other kind of fish do they have in in our area that they do hatcheries for uh, besides salmon so steelhead okay. um, steelhead trout um and then just other other trout so the the california department of fish and wildlife has a uh, wild heritage trout program and so they produce hatchery raised fish um to catch or to um basically supplement whatever natural fishery there is left um so one of the fisheries i worked with was the lahant cutthroat trout and specifically i was in in the tahoe basin but it's throughout the sierra um so they also do that for golden trout um different different strains of rainbows like the the rainbow trouts that everyone catches today are historically historically from eagle lake oh and um you know what people don't know is a lot of our fish are actually thriving in other parts of the world so like south america argentina chile um new zealand yep. new zealand probably has the best eagle lake rainbow trout genetics wow. like they're thriving over there um so are our salmon yeah um but yeah they're not thriving in their natural you know habitat which is crazy um but yeah the the fisheries world like just in california is already big um but throughout like you know when i was in grad school the books were saying twenty nine thousand species and counting and now they're saying thirty three thousand species and counting so this was three years ago 
So in three years, they've definitely discovered 4,000 new species of fishes. Wow. And that's going to continue to grow. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to um, touch on something that you said earlier and something we were talking about, um, that fish are, and amphibians are a lot like canaries in coal mines, and they are indicators of a healthy watershed, and a healthy watershed is really a requirement for all of us living in that area. Um, so what what do you think as an expert what can we do like what can normal people do to help support um a healthy watershed and healthy fish um so the easiest thing that i always say is uh plant native species um so whether that's trees or shrubs or you know whatever it may be that's native to the area um grasses um definitely do that the other thing is um support local tribes who are trying to um use fire as medicine to bring in habitat back um and you know that's being adopted in many places now and this last fire season was probably the best season we've had in a really long time mm -hmm. up here one because most of our forests have burned up here um the other because there's actually there management fire management is getting a lot better yeah. and they're incorporating fires sooner rather than later yep um so support local tribes who want to burn the landscape um in a healthy way um i mean besides strict like habitat restoration those are really good to do um yeah. because you know more trees provides more shade but the other thing trees provide is all pr like a lot of primary production so all the insects and stuff that fall into the creeks and into the lake that feed the fishes um you know the bigger the fish are the more likely they are to survive so we want them nice and fat um but yeah planting um the native landscape bringing mm -hmm. it back because in clear lake specifically i don't know about mendocino and sonoma county but clear lake specifically it's like I think 95% of wetlands are gone and then like all of California yeah. has lost 95% of its wetlands in the last 60 yeah. years and then the other thing 90% of the riparian habitat's gone um, so you know the canary in the coal mine you could you could use a lot of canaries and say you know what's going on yeah um, but yeah just planting um, native trees and you know there's a lot of trees there's a lot of native trees popping up right now yeah and a lot of the times people are like oh let me get rid of this because i want to be able to see the lake it's just like well you don't want to see the lake in august when there's a bunch of algae in the way um so one of the things that trees do is provide a lot of shade so they bring temperature down um and they also bring water temperature down if there's enough trees you bring the water temperature down enough to where the algae doesn't thrive as it does um and i don't think anyone alive today has seen what clear lake used to be like why they called it clear lake because since then we've changed the system system entirely i mean there there very well maybe some people alive today that had seen it clear lake you know for what it used to be why it was named clear lake but it's completely different now like when i was a kid i'd swim in it all the time and my daughter's about to turn five and i think she swam in the lake once and it was like I don't know, mid-May, and the water was still super cold, and I was just like, you're crazy for wanting to swim in there. But she always wants to swim. Like, she wanted to swim last week. 
so um yeah it cracks me up when we go get seaweed and the kids are swimming in the ocean yeah. and it's <laughs> april <laughs> i'm shivering and like oh i'm not you know i'm not dying today it's yeah. must warm it's crazy um yeah i used to swim in it too and then when we went over to the Thule boat festival and i had some kids with me it's like i don't know if you really want to swim in there it's yeah. kind of funky in there now um i did see postcards when i was young of when it was you know before it got really popular with yeah. tourists mm -hmm. when it was still really the, like it, i don't know if those photos were touched up <laughs> or they're just really um or if it was really blue and really clear um i will never know because i'm not old enough um okay i had another question and now it has escaped my mind oh so i wanted to talk about what the tribes around the lake are doing yeah um because i i talked to mio yesterday who i love to chat to anyway but she wanted to me to make sure that we mention she's from robinson she mm -hmm. wants to make sure that we mention what all the tribes are doing we talk a lot about big valley we talk a lot about robinson but um one thing that she told me that i didn't know was that there's a hitch hatchery in like beginning stages at robinson are you involved with that so there was a hatchery um when they first got listed by california uh we we had a hatchery we actually have i don't know like 15 to 20 hitch remaining from that original hatchery mm -hmm. and they're near the end of their life um but water quality wasn't good enough to keep the hatchery going oh, so it kind of just stopped and um you know as a as a biologist i'm not entirely for hatcheries mm -hmm. just because of the fecundity problem and what other problems um could come from hatcheries but in the state of like hey this might be the final effort to bring that these fish they are definitely needed like in the central valley if the central valley didn't have any hatcheries there would be no more salmon wow um and like the central valley fish is like over 95 percent of the genetics are now hatchery for salmon including wild wild caught so wow. um in some cases hatcheries are definitely needed um but i don't want it to get to that level i'd rather them be produced be produced naturally and yeah. be reared naturally um but yeah the tribes are doing a bunch of stuff i could speak for robinson just because i work for them um big valley is doing awesome monitoring mm -hmm. they just did a, a a lidar project um where they connect different flows and they're able to say hey this is what we need to be flowing through adobe creek for a good spawning season and a good rearing season um and rearing is just like once once the eggs are incubated the juveniles okay are reared so th they live out their life so they're rearing habitat in the streams and then make their way down to the lake um and they're also doing uh restoration stuff so i know they did um tule planting along their shoreline mm -hmm. uh, which is great um because you know it it's very common knowledge for tribes in the area that fishes love the tule um but it's not really scientifically published so we scientifically we can't say so um but we know we know what it is yeah um so yeah tule tule production along their shorelines um can't really say more about their projects cool. just because 
it's not my place to say so, but they're doing awesome work. Okay, and then I, I remembered my question now because okay. I'm looking at my notes. So Upper Lake is working on fish passage to make sure Hitch can get to their spawning grounds. Mm-hmm. And that is um, that was what my question is related to. So I understand about salmon and their ladders. Mm-hmm. And then I understand about lamprey and, and the way that they can suck up a mm-hmm. tube to get up alongside. What are the Hitch's requirements and on top of that, you t- I asked you last time we were together about what it's called um, in the stream where you have different flows, like a nursery and then uh, where it's faster. So what is that called? <laughs> so I can remember. And what what do the lamprey need to get to where they are trying to get to? Um, so best case scenarios is there's no barriers. Um, and it depends on certain flows. So like you could have a barrier that's a foot tall, but if you have a flow that's five feet tall that barrier you just go right over that barrier and you have no problem um yeah lamprey i got to i got to work on a project with lamprey they're awesome fish um they're super fatty super oily and a lot of the northern tribes use them as a subsistence and i've I've been able to eat them um i have a lot of buddies in the hoopa tribe and the Yurok tribe and they've always shared fish with me um, so I've been very spoiled, but yeah, lamprey. I mean, if there's no barrier, that's that's the best case possible. I know a lot of the um, the Columbia Basin. They're doing projects to allow lamprey passage um, because most of the most of the, like the fish ladders and stuff are made for salmon, mm-hmm. um, salmon specifically. And you know, different species can use them and can pass them, but not at the rate that salmon pass them. Um, so if I remember correctly, it's like 95% salmon made it past one fish passage, I think at Bonneville, Bonneville Dam. Um, and then like, I don't know, 15% of lamprey made it. And then like 5% of sturgeon made it. Um, so yeah, there just needs to be like specific passages mm-hmm. for different species of fish. And they're the they're definitely developing those passages at a better rate just because it's really hard to remove dams it takes a long time yeah um so yeah much easier to put them up yeah (laughs) than to get them down yeah so passages just depends um so upper lake habimental they are yeah they're working on um getting rid of some barriers um so in certain flows those barriers are very very distinct um and i know that area very well um so basically what you want to do is change the flows or water height so either those barriers are passable or you just you just take them out completely and allow the fish to pass naturally very cool so i want to um quickly before we leave talk about um the project that we're doing together how we actually met in cob yeah um and i haven't talked about that project at all i'm not a fish person um i'm not technically a river person but that is where a lot of my basketry materials are from and so i have a certain uh, view of the landscape of a river and i imagine that you have that view of the waterway and surrounding area so i wanted um to hear you talk about the project that we have coming up because i know on uh the end of the month we're doing our first real community meeting uh, with the people along the waterway. So, let you take it. Yeah, so I see these projects in a 
very different way from a lot of people. Um, so when I walk through a creek or a river, I see water at different flows and what the different habitat structures uh, may do at these flows. So like willows, I love willows, um, especially when they're in the floodplain. They they're able to make different habitat structures to where little small fishes love willows. They go in there, they avoid predation, they eat a bunch, they get bigger, and then they make their way downstream. Um, and yeah, that, that project is uh, Mandala Springs Resort. We used to be the old Yogi Bear campground mm-hmm. um, in Cobb on Kelsey Creek. Um, and the cool thing about that area is they have water year-round um, just because there's no irrigation impact upstream of them. And so if you if you follow Kelsey Creek down, I'm I'm not entirely sure how far, um, but at some point the creek goes subsurface, so there's no longer a creek flow, and it it's completely dry for miles and miles, and then it gets wet um, near the town of Kosovo once again. And this is, you know, we're in a drought, so that's what the case is now. Um, when we're not in a drought, the creek is is flowing pretty well, um, but yeah, that project. I'm hoping we could we could do a lot of willow planting, mm-hmm. um, just because it'll enhance habitat during flood stages. But at the same time, I mean, all the different ecological benefits that willows have. Like, I don't know too much about it, but I know they're very important. Um, but yeah, I hope that project goes very well um, because there's awesome habitat up there. I saw a bunch of trout. Yeah, um, I was bummed. Um, I got to see the pictures of you wading <laughs> through the oh, yeah. water, and I was like, oh, I, I definitely need waders yeah. now. <laughs> I'm definitely going to need it for yeah, this yeah. project. So waders are super important. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different projects, like Robinson-specific projects. We have a, a carp and goldfish um, removal feasi- feasibility study coming up in February. Awesome. And a lot of people don't know that carp and goldfish are just horrible ecologically. They uproot everything. They dig into the sediments like two to three feet and wow. expose, you know, sediments that have been covered up for thousands of years. And we don't know if they're toxic or not. Oh, um, dang. I did eat, not know that. They eat absolutely everything. Um, after about a year, they no longer have predators because they have um, pectoral and dorsal spines. So larger fish can't eat them. Wow. And they get very big. Very, very big. Like, and there's a goldfish in Clear Lake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, that yeah, is yeah. crazy. We tagged, we tagged a, it was like eight or nine pound goldfish last year. And then we tagged a 46 pound carp. Oh man. And so the thing about carp is like, once you get to 10 pounds, they're producing five to 10 million eggs. Wow, yeah. I didn't know they got that big. Yeah, I'm yeah. not a, I'm like I said, I'm not a fish person. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know a goldfish. I mean, I've seen big goldfish, but I did not know that they would be six Yeah, pounds. and they, they basically like bully all the other fishes, um, like in the worst case of bullying. Like oh, they, they bully everything. Um, I've never seen the lake more turbid, so more brown because of mud, than during the carp spawn. Wow. It's crazy how dark the lake gets. That is crazy. So that's one project we're working on. Uh, We're trying to manage manage the population because they outcompete everything. So we're hoping if we take a certain amount out that all the other fishes rebound and then habitat starts coming back. 
Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so we are coming to the end of our time, and I want to thank you so much for being here, for giving up your holiday, um, and coming over and being my first in-person person in the studio. So I'm really grateful for that. I want to take a moment to thank everybody um, for listening and wish everybody a wonderful new year. May 2023 be a year of growth, prosperity, and peace for all. Be sure to take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Uh, I'm going to play you one more song. The last song I'm going to play for you is actually a traditional Mohawk song. Uh, it's a song of prayer and celebration, which is a perfect song to celebrate the start of the new year. And it's also a fitting song to follow our discussion today. It is called The Fishing Song.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.